information that you receive on Exclusively Inclusive Podcast is designed to be a learning experience for patients and listeners in order to supplement their own information so they can be better equipped to be advocates in their own healthcare journey. The opinions expressed by Erin Everett are the opinions of her own and do not represent any third parties or separate entities. In addition, the specialists that present on the show are also here to supplement your own healthcare information and are not designed to replace any treatment plans or information you're receiving from your own healthcare specialists. We hope that you enjoy the show and continue to subscribe and listen in. Making sure that our patients are really knowledgeable and really research their options before going into a specific procedure. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that a lot of the patient providers, the majority of the providers that are doing gender affirming surgery, uh, have been doing it for a long time and have operated in, in a number of patients, but it's mm-hmm. important for patients to, to really do their research, understand the provider, and really there's nothing wrong in seeing more than one surgeon and sort of get a feel mm-hmm. for that person because the person you decided to go with it's the same surgeon that is going to need to be with you by your side for the next, you know, it could be several years of mm-hmm. the process. So you really want to make sure that you, you really connect that person and that person is available for you. Welcome to Exclusively Inclusive, your source for the latest in LGBTQIA healthcare, transgender HRT, and personal empowerment. Here's your host, Aaron Everett. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Exclusively Inclusive. I'm your host, Erin Everett. On today's episode, I'm really excited to be interviewing Dr. Gabriel Del Corral, who's a gender-affirming surgeon that works in Georgetown University Hospital. Dr. Gabriel Del Corral was amazing to interview. He has a lot of experience. He does not just serve the gender community. He has experience in all types of different surgeries. However, on today's podcast episode, we'll be focusing more on what he can do for gender affirmation. The types of procedures that Dr. Gabriel Del Corral does is expansive, and he does a lot for the gender community. So we're going to be talking in more detail about each type of surgery he does and what to expect from the outcomes and recovery and what kind of preparation you might need before those surgeries. So I know a lot of you have a lot of questions about gender affirming surgeries and what they entail. And so hopefully you get some answers out of today's episode. Dr. Del Corral has been recognized for his advanced techniques and abilities throughout his career. Um, Today, he performs over 400 breast surgeries per year and over 200 gender surgeries per year. That's a lot. He also does a lot of, quote, second opinion consultations every week, um, whether people have already had surgery elsewhere or they're just scoping out different surgeons. A lot of the times people end up going with Dr. Gabriel Del Corral because of his personal touch. He and his team are really focused on delivering individualized care for every individual that reaches out to them. And I noticed that when I was talking to him, that he's a very genuine person. And I think he he and his team try really hard to make sure that the patients understand what to expect and that they do everything in their power to make sure the insurance is going to get coverage for you. And if not, and if they cannot do that for you, they're very upfront about what the expected outcome and cost might be for each person and what procedure they're seeking. He has actually won top doctor every year since 2015. He was most recently um, nominated top doctor in 2018 for all of his surgical pursuits. He's amazing. And I cannot wait for you guys to talk to him and get to meet him. So without any further ado, let's talk to Dr. Gabriel Del Corral. All right. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gabriel Del Corral. Karen, thank you so much for the invitation. It's truly an honor to be here with uh, everybody talking about this very important subject. Yeah, we're really happy to have you. Thank you so much. Yeah. So before we get started, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know your preferred pronouns and uh, some fun facts about you that maybe people don't know about. Sure. Uh, You know, my name is Gabriel Del Corral. I'm a plastic surgeon uh, in the Baltimore and D.C. area. My pronouns are uh, he and him. And, um, you know, I've been uh, doing a general affirmative surgery for the last uh, four years uh, some of the fun facts about me, I'm originally uh, from Panama and came to the United States specifically to train and uh, end up staying here. And I'm a big car and kiteboarding fanatic. Oh, cars. What kind of cars are you into? Well, I like anything that has some degree of speed. <laughs> Classic, <laughs> modern, anything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could see how that would be really a fun way to spend your weekends when you're not working. Um, Absolutely. (laughs) Excellent. And so how did you get into uh, gender affirming surgeries? What brought you to that field? 
I mean, that's a great question. I really started doing general affirming surgeries uh, secondary to having a lot of patients who uh, came and, and seek uh, to me looking for top surgery. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I went and traveled uh, and visited many centers Mm-hmm. that I really sort of fall in love with the technical aspect of specifically the genital surgery mm-hmm. aspect of, of, of the procedure. You know, a, a little background for me, uh, my godfather uh, was a gender affirming surgeon in Colombia. He was a GYN who did a lot of vaginoplasties. Oh, really? And I, I remember when I was growing up, seeing and going into his office and seeing this, you know, beautiful trans woman in, in the office. And he always caught my attention. So I think there's a little bit of genetics into it as well. Yeah, for sure. It's great to have like a nice, strong role model as well to show you something that's, you know, has a lot less exposure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's very interesting to see his, you know, communications and interviews in the newspaper for what it was back then uh, and what it is now. So it's it's really evolving and, and, and changing positively. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's great. And the community is really glad to have another ally on board um, willing to, you know, increase access to care. So and with all that in mind, I think it's really important that we touch on some of the um, surgeries that you do. So what kind of services do you include when when it comes to gender affirming surgery? So right now uh, we have a a multidisciplinary center that really with other specialties, we're able to offer uh, the majority of gender affirming procedures, starting from facial feminization hmm. to, uh, you know, neck feminization, such as tracheal shave. You know, we do top and we do bottom surgery. The only service that we don't provide is any type of voice surgery or any type of vocal training okay. at the moment. Yeah. Is there plans to incorporate that in the future since you said at the moment? Yeah. You know, I think there's always a role to to improve and expand. And I would love to at least have a uh, person, a therapist, specifically this uh, training mm-hmm. on vocal training as the vocal surgery part itself. I think you do need to go to a specialized center mm-hmm. uh, with a lot of experience for that delicate surgery. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. It's it's highly specialized. And I'm in the research that I've done, there's not that many people doing it. And those that are, there's even fewer that are doing a really great job at it. Um, So I'd agree with you on that, for sure. And with that in mind, I mean, one of the things that, you know, I think people in the community look to is kind of how many patients are you treating and what kind of outcomes are you getting with each type of surgery? Sure. That's a that's a good question is is a bit broad. Mm -hmm. So I'll I'll be let's go ahead and just sort of maybe divide the question into, uh, you know, maybe top procedures and bottom procedures. And, you know, I think right now when we look at our yearly uh, amount of cases that we're doing, we're doing a high number of top surgeries, usually anywhere between 75 to 120 cases Mm -hmm. a year of top surgery. And that's a combination of, of, you know, chest masculinization and chest feminization, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do a good number of genital surgery as well. Uh, We do over 50 vaginoplasties each year and about 25 phalloplasties every year. And, you know, I I think when we look at at outcomes, and you mentioned a great buzzword, which is outcomes. What is outcomes? Outcomes Mm -hmm. means really how good are we doing and and are our patients happy? And more importantly, Mm -hmm. are patients having a relief in their dysphoria? after what we're doing. And, you know, as part of Georgetown uh, faculty, we're trying to gather uh, data and and do research to to evaluate these questions that you're answering. And and I think for the most part, I think the complications for the surgeries, uh, specifically for things like top surgery and vaginoplasties, the complication rate is quite small. Mm -hmm. And if there's complications, they're very easily managed. You know, phalloplasties obviously is a little bit more technical there's mm-hmm. other options. There's, you know, more room for error as the patient has it's a more complex procedure. And I think things like facial feminization are really, really on the lower end of complications with mm-hmm. a much higher satisfaction rate for our patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's really neat to see sort of the different uh, procedures and the impact that they have on our patients. But for most procedures are actually fairly safe if going to the right place and patients are uh, obviously counsel against Mm -hmm. the potential complications, of course. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, for sure. And, and to your point about being more broad versus specific. So more specifically, when you're talking about facial feminization surgeries and patients having really pleasant outcomes, what kind of things are you incorporating, in, incorporating into the facial feminization process? Yeah, the facial feminization, you know, it's about building harmony in the face and mm-hmm. achieving a lot of that feminine contour. But it's so variable between one patient and the other that it's really no, there's no really cookie cutter recipe mm-hmm. that one patient is going to come in and it's going to say, okay, you get the facial feminization package. Right. It just doesn't work that way. Right. You know, I really try to focus to see what actually the patients are bothered because a patient may come in with a brow ridge or frontal mm-hmm. bossing. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, maybe the patient would like to have that address and the patient doesn't even mention that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we really offer anything from a forehead setback to contouring to, to rhinoplasty to facelift to more of the mandible work. And that's all incorporated in the realm of facial feminization. Mm-hmm. But there's really, I can tell you that I have done, you know, the same procedure on, on, on two patients because it's just so variable. Mm-hmm. There's also insurance limitations, of course, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, you know, there are limitations on what the insurance can cover versus what you can cover in sort of a cosmetic cash fee basis, of course. And so we have to be sensitive to that and we cannot just offer something that is going to be, you know, super exponentially expensive, knowing that that's something that the patient may not be able to afford. So we have to be cautious and in, in, in how do we present that and make sure that we're transparent and and telling the patient what are the options and what can be accomplished. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, I really love that you uh, mentioned that, you know, no two patients are alike and that you don't practice cookie cutting surgery because, I mean, that's how we practice medicine in our clinic. Like, and I try to remind patients that everybody's journey is going to be different and their hormone dosing is going to look different. Their outcomes are going to look different. And of course, the same holds true for surgery. So I think it's really important that you're having that conversation with people so that they can reset their expectations of surgery as well and what that might look like for them as a person. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to to really have the patient understand what are the limitations with the surgeon and what can be accomplished. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same thing as, you know, we don't offer like a catalog mm-hmm. of where the patient can choose what sort of result. They can be some similar results, but it's very difficult to achieve a very similar or equal result based on the you know, all the changes or the variables such as skin texture, skin mm-hmm. color, skin thickness, just taking that small variable of skin, is, it can give you, uh, uh, for example, a breast augmentation result that is very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's important for patients to sort of understand that aspect of, of surgery. Yeah, absolutely. And you touched on it, and I was going to ask you about that when you say skin color and texture. Now, for for patients who are in the community and, and have more, you know, the people of color, they, their their skin tone is darker, and they may have concerns about abnormal scarring or keloiding. Is that something yeah. that you run into a lot? And if so, like, are there solutions for that, or are these patients just, you know, kind of have to deal with that as a possible aspect? Yeah, no, that's a great question, and I think there are some areas that are more more prevalent and sensitive than others. Mm-hmm. I can tell you, for example, and just using an example, sometimes doing a procedure that requires an incision in the chest, for example, mm-hmm. which is a much mobile area. Right. If I'm operating in, uh, you know, someone with you know black or brown skin, mm-hmm. they're more likely to develop hypertrophic scarring in that chest area. So we are much more aggressive in you know, using scar care modalities to decrease that. Mm. And there's different things that you can use creams to silicone sheets to even counsel the patient. Hey, we know this is a huge possibility. We Mm -hmm. know that we have to cure your dysphoria. and We want to make sure we do this for you. If this were to happen with a keloid, Mm -hmm. these are the options. Right. Because there are always options here. And there's things that we can do. It may not be fully preventable during the first surgery. Right. But there's possibilities that we can maybe remove it and give other uh, modalities to, to decrease it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and vaginoplasty, we don't see that keloiding uh, hypertrophic scarring so often, really? for example. It's an area with a little bit less mobility. Mm-hmm. Uh, there could be widening of the scars, but we don't see the same issues with keloids mm. as well. But again, it's something in the back of our mind, of course. Of course. Um, 
you know, patients ask me, are you going to do something different in the closure or is there something that you, and we, as plastic surgeons, we always strive to do a multi-layer closure, try to make it look as pretty as we can. So that's a given from the get-go. And I think it's a lot of variable depending on where you're doing that incision that Mm -hmm. the result can vary. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really good. And I think probably even having that conversation with the patient, again, making it a realistic expectation is even more valuable than any solution you could present so that they're not waking up shocked, you know, um, or going through the recovery shocked at possible outcomes. I think, you know, anytime you're doing something with someone and you present all the possible variables, it, it inevitably makes the outcome, you know, more manageable. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think a lot of people see uh, sometimes as really uh, technicians and surgeons, but the reality is that, you know, we got into this field to really advise and care for patients throughout the process. And I feel like the relationship I have with my patients when they come from a gender affirmation journey mm-hmm. is not something that it's just a one month or a three month or six months follow up. It's really years mm-hmm. of of follow up and and making sure they're doing well and and being being there for them uh, throughout the process and guide them through that. And so, it's completely new for them, right? And so during that time, then are you in your clinic available to them for outreach? And what does that look like? You know, are they, is it easily accessible to reach out to you and your team for questions, even you know a year after their procedure? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I tell my patients I'm the easiest man to find because <laughs> you can either send us an, an email through the website. It goes directly on my email. Or you can text me. You can find me via email. You can find me through the Med, through the MedStar health system. It's very, very easy to find me. So, uh, yes. And, you know, now with, you know, technology, it's so easy to, to send an email from anywhere in the world. And mm-hmm. um, so I think it's easier to be accessible for our patients. Yeah. And technology too, with probably a lot of your patients not being local, you know, and being able to video chat and stuff helps out a lot, of, right? Yeah. Video chat has really changed my practice because, yeah. you know, as you know, what about that patient who had maybe a, a top surgery and is worried about the nipple graft? Mm-hmm. Hey, it only takes, you know, one second to take a picture mm-hmm. and send it. And, and we can really provide peace of mind because back in the day, if that were happening on the Friday, mm-hmm. then you won't get an answer maybe on Monday or Tuesday. So <laughs> you're right about uh, that. You know, it, it has definitely helped us to be to be better at what we do. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's it's nice and it's reassuring and comforting to patients because as a provider who is trying to vet out resources and make sure that, you know, my referral base is solid and that they have a good experience, one thing that patients are concerned about is that they will go to another state, have their surgery, come back, and will be kind of left in no man's land without any support when things pop up, whether it's like if you're talking about vaginoplasty, a lot of patients will experience changes in discharge when I say, I mean, they haven't had this organ before. And so it's all uncharted waters. And to know that that support is easily accessible is huge for them. Absolutely. Yeah. The other thing that I was going to ask you about when it comes to that type of thing, you know, you were talking about um, insurance having limitations. So I wanted to touch on that before we went further into the actual details of surgery, because that is one thing I get asked about a lot is, are you finding it easy for insurance and payers to pay this for these procedures? And if so, like are ones covered more than others? I imagine probably vaginoplasty is covered more than facial feminization, but maybe not. And is your office assisting that with patients? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we 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 spend a huge amount of time uh, navigating through the insurance world. Yeah, uh, I can tell you that from now to when I first started, insurances are certainly approving these procedures a lot easier than before. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to be I used to be on the phone with the medical directors of insurance companies every week. about procedures and I just don't see that anymore you know I think the only variability with insurance are two things that patients need to be aware sometimes there are specific you know exclusions Mm -hmm. and just you know uh, in that specific subtype of insurance that the patient may have and even though they may say I have XY insurance which is a very broad Mm well-known carrier Mm -hmm. they may have an exclusion in their actual insurance Mm -hmm. policy 
that may not cover gender affirmation procedures. Mm-hmm. So that's something to, to know as well. The other important factor is that, you know, there are also insurances variability in the amount of information or letters required for procedures. Some insurance require one, sometimes they require two, mm-hmm. and it's completely independent what WPATH Mm-hmm. Uh, once. So, you know, right. there's different criteria and for patients need to understand that, you know, depending on their insurance, they should contact their insurance company to see those specific requirements. And there's no question that for uh, anything that is below the neck, mm-hmm. those procedures are much easily covered. Mm-hmm. Facial feminization, it's at least in the East Coast, it's still an ongoing challenge to get this procedure mm-hmm. covered. That's what I figured. However, I, I I am seeing a little bit more and more of, of a changes, mm-hmm. and hopefully in the next five, 10 years, we'll have that completely change. Mm-hmm. And the only way to change it is showing the insurance company patient-reported outcomes that our patients are doing better. Mm-hmm. And you know, for that, we also need to collaborate and put our put our scientific scientific quote to right. really try to to help out and and, and really produce data that is going to be useful to advocate for our patients. Yeah, absolutely. And I've actually had, and I, and I suspected that was the case because I have had patients who, you know, have come to me upset because they don't understand why is a bilateral mastectomy for top surgery covered when my facial feminization surgery is considered elective and cosmetic. And it comes back to us having to advocate for them, but them also having to advocate for themselves. And nine times out of 10, it's because a lot of insurance companies or human resources who are dictating the benefits covered have no idea that facial feminization is considered medically necessary in gender affirming surgery. They don't know it's a thing. And so they're still considering like, oh, well, your, your, um, your brow bone being shaved and adjusted is elective, whereas it's not. It's very medically necessary in someone who has a lot of dysphoria surrounding it. And so I've actually had patients approach their HR departments, you know, when they are up for it and talk to them about having it be an included benefit because, you know, it's just ignorance. And it's not necessarily because they are not, you know, they're trying to be transphobic, but a lot of it is ignorance. Unless you're in the community and educating yourself, you're not aware that that is considered a necessary procedure. Yeah, absolutely. I think it really amazed me to see if you really think about it. You look yourself in the mirror every day. How mm-hmm. come we're we're allowing this as the last option mm-hmm. for patients to change their face when they have changed every other part of their body? And it's right. still very difficult for them to change facial features because it's so correlated to the aesthetic world. But it's right. the most important feature that we have that we identify with ourselves. So for sure, Aaron, it's, it's going to be an ongoing battle, but I think we will be able to win it at the end. Yeah, I agree, especially with uh, staunch advocates like yourself and your teammates. That's well, super impressive. Much, yeah, man. I mean, it's not very often you hear about the surgeon sitting on the phone with medical directors of insurance companies trying to get procedures covered. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's the only way we win this battle. For yeah, sure. yeah. Well, we appreciate it. So, you know, that is that is definitely a hot topic is insurance. So but when insurance isn't covering it is are the surgical procedures too cost prohibitive for people to obtain out of pocket? You know, there's certainly a variability in the in the cost of procedures. Right. But when you when you're doing procedures that are Mm -hmm. and I'm not talking about the soft tissue, Mm -hmm. like the facelift and the rhinoplasties, but Things that require changes in the craniofacial structure of someone require planning. For example, you know, any type of forehead or setback or mandibular setback, well, that requires sort of the evaluation of the CAT scan. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of virtual planning that we do before those surgery. Mm-hmm. It also requires special instruments to get in someone's sort of that area mm-hmm. and do a good job, a precise job. Yeah. And that just elevates the cost sometimes to be to be quite high, to be honest with you. Right. Um, So but I think that, you know, that's for patients who really require sort of the typical setback or significant genioplasty, which is sort of advancing or reducing someone's mandible. But there is a gray line. There are some patients that do not require a big change. and, And that we can certainly can be affordable for sure. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, that's good to know. And so with insurance and, you know, out, out of pocket stuff aside, some of the other questions that uh, people have written in about would, you know, involve things like what kind of conditions or underlying medical issues or whatnot would make someone not a candidate for vaginoplasty? That's a that's a great question, and I get that question asked uh, a lot of the time. I just want to clarify, you know, we'll, we'll divide into conditions, and then mm-hmm. I think other things like patient factors mm-hmm. are sort of what are the red flags. And I, I think when you talk about conditions, right? Uh, I think that any patient who has had any type of radical prostatectomy for prostate cancer can have difficulty in creating the canal. Right. That is required for a vaginoplasty because that usually gets radiated. So those patients may want to consider, you know, the procedure or get a further MRI to evaluate the area. Uh, and some, some of those patients may just go up to do a vulvoplasty, uh, mm-hmm. but it depends on the scenario. A lot of the times they ask me about kinetic tissue disorders. And I have operating in, in a number of patients with connective tissue, and I have not found to be a higher increase of wound healing complications. Mm -hmm. I think the two main challenges that are common, that Mm -hmm. are risk factors are smoking and patients who have a BMI greater than 35 or 40. Those are red flags for Mm -hmm. poor wound healing. Yeah. And I strongly don't recommend it because not only you have problems with wound healing, it's difficult to, to also obtain a good canal. Patients also have a difficulty being able to access the vaginal area for dilation because their mm-hmm. abdominal size. So all those factors, you know, can lead to a poor vaginoplasty result. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine too that that would be the case, especially with smoking. And it's not just for vaginoplasty, but a lot of surgeons are hesitant to perform unnecessary slash life, you know, not life-saving procedures on patients who are still smoking because of the poor wound healing. Exactly. Yeah. So you touched on, you know, radical prostatectomy, maybe not being a great option for a full depth vaginoplasty, but would be considered for vulvoplasty, which presents my next question or leads us into it. Um, a lot of patients ask me about the difference between the two of those procedures and why one would be better than the other. Great, great question. You know, I think that the there are two main differences between mm-hmm. the vaginoplasty and the vulvoplasty. Obviously, the vaginoplasty does have a vaginal canal, mm-hmm. and the vulvoplasty doesn't have a vaginal canal, uh, but the exterior part of the genitalia looks like a vaginoplasty result. It's, it's what it is. Vulvoplasty means just the exchange or the change of the external uh, anatomy, mm-hmm. so it looks the same. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, a typical patient who doesn't want to do a vaginoplasty, patients who sometimes are a bit older mm-hmm. or not interested in a dilation, mm-hmm. and perhaps they have a female partner and they're, they're not interested in penetration of any kind. Those mm-hmm. patients usually will require or seek a vulvoplasty. Mm-hmm. A vulvoplasty uh, hospitalization is usually about two to three days versus a vaginoplasty can range between five and seven. Mm-hmm. So you can see how the recovery time, the hospitalization is much different between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And so for the people in the community listening, uh, the vulvoplasty is often referred to as zero depth for, you know, lay people because exactly, of the lack of yeah. the vaginal canal. Is that right? Ex- yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And so for someone who's unsure and, and, and maybe cost is a factor because insurance isn't covering it, would you say that the two procedures have a significant cost difference? Absolutely. I mean, the, just if you base it just on OR time, the mm-hmm. time that it takes to do that work, there's usually about an hour to an hour and a half to two hour difference between the two procedures. So that's going to translate into changes in the cost of the procedure mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Also, the risk is is almost you know much 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 less, less yeah. because you're not creating any potential injury to the rectum or the bladder. So it's it's a much safer operation than the vaginoplasty. Okay. Well, what about sexual function with either or both of them? I love that question. You know, sexual function is one of our really uh, priorities when we talk patients Mm -hmm. after their surgery, especially six months out, a year later. We want to see how is their sexual function. Mm -hmm. In sexual function, we look at different things, including the ability to orgasm, their ability mm-hmm. to feel comfortable while having sex. Right. And if you look at our my uh, 
experience and also just looking at the papers and the data out there, sexual function is quite high. And a lot of the patients have good capability for orgasms mm-hmm. uh, after the surgery for both procedures. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say greater than 80% of the patients uh, are able to, to achieve an orgasm. And I also find that if patients are able to orgasm prior to surgery, mm-hmm. they're well able to, to orgasm after the surgery. But if you have someone who is not able to orgasm prior to surgery, it is unlikely that they will orgasm after the surgery. So something to consider. Yeah, that's a super interesting point that I have not heard been brought up before. So yeah, that's a really interesting factor, of course. Now, when you're saying both they're able to orgasm, just for clarification purposes, and I tend to ask questions that other people wouldn't, but I know people are thinking it. So they're, are they orgasming via the new clitoral hood or is it got to do with prostate stimulation? Yeah, no, when we assess the function of, of when we ask orgasm as a mm-hmm. parameter, it's primarily the clitoral sensation, clitoral mm-hmm. stimulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the prostate is left left behind. You mm-hmm. know, some people refer it as a as a the P spot. Mm-hmm. And oh, like um, <laughs> it, it does have some erogenous sensation, of course, but that's usually, um, you know, not evaluated or unaffected. Mm-hmm. After the surgery, we focus on really on clitoral sensitivity. Okay. And so for full vaginoplasty and the P spot, is the is the vagina that you're building out able to accommodate an average size penis for like penetration? Or will they, I mean, probably not immediately after, but with continued uh, dilations? Absolutely. Yes. The, the average canal, mm-hmm. it can be anywhere between four and six and a half, seven inches. Mm-hmm. And so it, it certainly with good discipline of using the dilators, you'll be able to accommodate, uh, like you mentioned, a regular size penis. It just takes work yeah. after a vaginoplasty. It takes a lot of discipline mm-hmm. uh, and it takes you know a lot of time to be able to dilate three times a day for the first couple of months post-surgery. Right. right. And so you said for the first couple of months after that, does the dilations decrease in frequency? Does it have anything to do with sexual use? Yeah, so everyone has a little bit of a different recipe. Mm-hmm. Uh, every surgeon has a different recipe when it comes to dilation. But yes, mm-hmm. as you know, as you go by to month three to six, the dilation becomes less frequent. Maybe you know once a day, and then maybe every other day. If the patient is having regular intercourse, well, that counts as dilation, mm-hmm. and the patient may not need to to dilate that day. So there is variability in in sort of the formulas, yeah. but. It's certainly for the first year, it's almost universal that you're going to need to be regularly dilating. Okay. And, and, and patients get familiar. You know, they know more than anyone else or more than any formula. That is true. How things, tights are looking or mm-hmm. things are feeling a little bit better. Maybe mm-hmm. I'll, I'll stop dilating today. I'll dilate on, on the next day mm-hmm. and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. And with penetration, or whether it's like a, a human phallus or a toy, whatnot, the P spot the prostate, is that able to be stimulated via intercourse in that way? Exactly. Yeah. yeah the the, the P-spot is actually closer now okay. because it's sort of just really one layer. Before it was, you have to sort of manipulate it through the rectum and yeah. there's some tissue in between. Now the tissue in between is gone and now there's a vaginal canal. Yeah. So that's certainly a uh, an easier access. Okay. Well, that's great. Cause I know that's, you know, all the things that people are thinking and sometimes, you know, don't want to ask. So I appreciate you answering those questions. Yeah, of course. Hey everyone, I have a quick favor to ask. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment and just clicking the subscribe button on whichever platform you use to listen to my show, that would be wonderful. Not only does it allow you to get notified every time I publish an episode, but it also helps with my ratings and reviews, which what that means in podcast world is that I'm able to climb up in the rating scale and reach other listeners. The whole reason why I started the show is to access people who needed the information. So please just go ahead and click subscribe. Then we can all be happy and continue to listen to this good quality free information. Thank you so much. You know, as far as that goes to you with sexual function and whatnot, do you find that your patients are as satisfied with their outcomes in that regard? Now, you said a lot of them have sexual function, but it is, is it what they thought it would be? Are they happier than they thought they would be? You know, kind of where do they usually fall on the spectrum when it comes to that? 
Yeah, I, I can tell you that my general impression is that, you know, most patients are very satisfied. It does take a little bit of exploration to mm-hmm. sort of get into that familiarity and be able to achieve, you know, orgasm and satisfaction. But mm-hmm. for the most part, patients are quite, quite happy. Mm-hmm. I think that the patients who are, I can tell you the patients who are generally not happy are sometimes patients that develop any type of complications or mm-hmm. for some reason they stop dilating and they lost a portion of the canal. Mm-hmm. And those are the patients who generally are less happy with the procedure and may require other procedures and other options. Mm-hmm. When you say they lost a certain depth of their canal, is it possible to get that back without surgery? It's very difficult, depending yeah. on the time being, to, to obtain any length. More commonly, patients need to have you know some sort of other surgery. And of course, that surgery can be a little bit more challenging than the first surgery as there's more scar tissue now. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay. And so then when it relates to all of that, moving on from vaginoplasty, I think it's also really important that we touch on phalloplasty. And because I feel like that's even less talked about, the surgical options are more limited depending on who you talk to and the surgeries are far more extensive. Would you believe that to be correct? Oh, 100%. I I think that I tell all my patients that you know, the complication rate for a phalloplasty is it can be 100%. Mm-hmm. It could be a small opening, but it's 100%. Mm-hmm. There's something that is going to happen. The question is, how do we as surgeons uh, really try to navigate to minimizing all that potential mm-hmm. issues? And there's different ways to do that uh, to have a good outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so do you perform both the phalloplasty and the metatoidoplasty? At our center, I perform the, the phalloplasties and my urologist will perform the, the metas. Okay. And mm-hmm. do you, can you briefly just describe the difference between those two pr- procedures? Sure. So a metoidoplasty is really the elongation of the hypertrophic clitoris. In mm-hmm. other words, hormones are given, the clitoris enlarges. Sometimes you can put a little topical cream mm-hmm. on the clitoris and use a small pumping device. Mm-hmm. And that all causes the clitoris to enlarge, almost mm-hmm. like a small penile mm-hmm. corona or, or, or tip. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, then ex- and then what we would do is with the using of the local tissue, mm-hmm. we would just elongate the urethra. So the patient is able to urinate through a what we call a microphallus, mm-hmm. but but the idea is that they can stand to urinate, but it's not enough to have penetration. Right. Okay. Although sensation is great because it's the same clitoris; it hasn't been moved, it hasn't been reattached and and re you know reconnected. Mm-hmm. So sensation tends to be to be quite good in in that. Phalloplasty is you're really building building something out of nothing. Yeah, And after you build it, you have to make sure that not only it has good sensation, but also the plumbing has to be correct so the right. urine can pass through the phallus. So that adds complexity to the to the process. Yeah, for sure. So do you typically, how many stages do your phalloplasty procedures usually entail? Yeah, so again, Erin, I think that the, the phalloplasty world can be done in, in two ways. Mm-hmm. And there's really no one recipe. Mm-hmm. or one way of doing it. Generally, if the patient wants to have a radioform mm-hmm. procedure, we generally uh, like to do everything in one stage and do mm-hmm. the urethral lengthening at the same time. Mm-hmm. And the reason I do it at the same time is because I have an excellent urologist that works with me that specializes in, in urethroplasty and not every center or not every place that is doing phalloplasty has that option. Right. So we're able to do everything in one stage meaning the phallus and the urethra. And then obviously the second and third stage will be any type of implants that will happen a year later. Right. And usually when we do a radioform, the anatomy is reliable. The blood supply is really good. Mm-hmm. Versus if the thigh flap has a little bit more variability in the blood supply. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, we like to just sort of do the phallus first and mm-hmm. then we'll come back and do the urethral lengthening later or connect the urethra later. Interesting. So that would be a two stage mm-hmm. uh, for that part versus a one stage. Mm-hmm. Which one tends to have the best outcomes in in your opinion and your experience? Yeah. So I think if you want the best sensation, mm-hmm. uh, and and I think sensation is one of the priorities after for this sure. procedure. I think the radio form is has has just anatomically the nerves are better mm-hmm. and the blood supply is better. 
as well. But of course, the area where you're taking the flap, it just leaves a, a quite a, lar- a large scar that needs to be covered. Right. And that's a turnoff for many, many patients, of course. Right. Yeah. But that's interesting that this such a marked difference, though, between the sensation. So do you feel like if someone is their top priority is trying to maintain sexual function postoperatively, that you would encourage them to get the radial forearm flap? I, I think that if they have the the willingness to use the forearm, I think mm-hmm. it's a great option. Yeah, uh, it's a, it tends to be a little bit more pliable and has a nicer aesthetic follows as well. Mm-hmm. The thigh in, in Occidental culture here in the U.S. sometimes can be a little thicker, mm-hmm. and that can carry a phallus that it's just you know quite large and quite thick, and it may require a lot of revisional procedures mm. uh, for patients. So that's something to consider as well. Wow. That is really interesting. <laughs> I just feel like there's so many things I could ask you um, about all of this. <laughs> go ahead. Go it's ahead. super fascinating. And, um, you know, patients, they don't always have the opportunity to have access to, you know, talking with a surgeon and asking them these questions. So I really appreciate you answering all these. A lot of people ask me and I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm not a surgeon, but I'll try my best to find out the information. You know, I got the hormones and stuff under wraps, but the other stuff, I leave it for people like you. <laughs> And so when you're talking about the differences in those two and one has a greater opportunity to have more sensation in general, do people who undergo phalloplasty have good sensation afterwards? Are they able to attain orgasm? Yeah. So uh, I think it takes time. Yeah. And I think the sensation is a process that may take a year to two years to the sensation in the phallus. Wow. And sometimes the sensation is not... You know, it's pressure sensation. It's not an erogenous sensation. Right. That's why, you know, we like to leave the clitoris at the base of the phallus so that can be stimulated as well. I see. Um, okay. But it's a process that, that can take some time. But most patients, the key to be able to have sensation is really time. Mm-hmm. And also once that happens, then we can talk about implants. Right. But we can't really put an implant in an area where you can feel because that can lead to complications and problems with excretion and things like that on the device. Yeah. 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 So when you're talking to patients and they're coming in the office for a surgical consult, what do you find that patients are most concerned about when it comes to, you know, masculinizing affirming surgery? Yeah, I think when you're talking about general surgery, I think one of the biggest factors that patients worry about is uh, really the donor side. Where is the tissue coming from? Really? Okay. And the second biggest question is how many surgeries am I going to need to accomplish where I want to be? Mm-hmm. I think patients are very, very knowledgeable and understand that this is sort of a long journey. It takes about two years to complete mm-hmm. and it requires uh, you know, it may require multiple surgeries, but I think those are the two main concerns that patients have. Yeah. And, you know, you bring up a valid point. I mean, it's it's extensive surgery. You know, people are concerned about, they're aware that there's a long recovery time and it's going to be a long journey. Is there anything that, you know, people like you in your field are working on to kind of change the face of masculinization surgery? Yeah. You know, there's ongoing, a lot of innovation happening. Yeah, uh, and and from a technical standpoint, to decrease the amount of complications, to the innovation of ways that we can improve the neurotization or the sensation when yeah. we connect nerves. So there's a lot of ongoing changes that I think in the next ten years, the way we do phalloplasty will be a lot different. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, if you put it in perspective, we used to do sort of many surgeries in multiple stages, such as breast reconstruction. Now mm-hmm. we do it all at once, right. and I foresee the same thing happening for gender affirming procedures, especially phalloplasty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've come a long way, but we have a ways to go, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's what keeps us going and still intrigued and trying to really answer questions. Yeah, right. And, and you know, since we're mentioning, you know, possible new developed surgeries, you had mentioned that you're offering a peritoneal vaginoplasty. What does that entail? I'm not really aware of that. Yeah, so a peritoneal vaginoplasty is a procedure that was developed a long time ago by using the peritoneum, which is this very thin, shiny layer that covers everyone's abdomen. Mm -hmm. And I didn't develop this operation, Mm -hmm. but it was developed already. And the idea is for you covering the inside of the vaginal canal with this peritoneum. Mm. The challenge is that you have to 
uh, being a, an, a specialty uh, multidisciplinary place where you have robotic surgeons that can use the peritoneum from inside your abdomen to cover the inner lining of the vaginal canal. So exteriorly, it will look the same, but the peritoneum mm-hmm. function is to cover the vaginal canal. Mm-hmm. And we have had good experience using this procedure for revision cases where patients who have lost the canal for different reasons, and we're able to obtain resurface the canal again. And so patients even refer some moisture mm-hmm. coming from the canal, but there's really very little data about the moisture factor. I have the opportunity to actually look at two patients who had the procedure over a year ago and in, looking at inside and see how this tissue looks a year later. Mm. And it's really beautiful and impressive how it just really mucosalizes, meaning it looks really nice and red, similar to a native cis female vaginal mm. mucosa. Mm. What we don't know, Erin, is how long is that canal going to stay open, right? There's no right. data so far. And does, does it require, you know, dilation for longer than a year? Yeah. And those answers we still don't have yet. So, you know, patients ask me why why we shouldn't just do a peritoneal vaginoplasty on everybody from the get-go because you can theoretically get more of that tissue and it may mm-hmm. be better and the canal may be better. Well, the, the reality is that the difference in the canal depth is not that much over time. Right. You know, we, we see that with colon vaginoplasties and you compare that to the actual standard vaginoplasty. You look at the studies and, you know, 14, 15, 16 centimeters is on average the, the, the amount, which is about five and a half, six, six inches for, for both procedures. So, uh, you know, I think over time it may not make, make a big difference and you're mm-hmm. subjecting yourself to a much bigger operation now going inside the abdomen with yeah. other risk. Right. So in general, you're, that's not your go-to. It's not something that you're recommending for most patients. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, not for primary vaginoplasty. Right. Uh, yeah. And I think. And is that what information is that what community members are referring to as the self lubricating? Is uh, the it, it is potentially. Which yeah. Is it's a bit of a, a misnomer because we you know generally don't have uh, good data on that yet. Right. Right. And you know I, I mean I and as you're aware the majority of patients won't be able to have access to surgery or potentially even desire surgery. So even with the hundreds of patients in the gender diverse community that I take care of, you know, really a small percentage have gone on to have full gender affirming surgery and uh, even less for phalloplasty, but the majority of vaginoplasty and out of that, I think only one had some sort of peritoneal procedure that they referred to as self uh, lubricating. That patient's no longer under my care, so I'm not able to get more information about that. But what I found fascinating was that while this was marketed to them as like, it'll be more like a normal vagina, like a cis vagina, it's going to operate more like a cis vagina. Their outcomes were actually decreased. They had decreased satisfaction because of the amount of um, discharge they experienced with it. Oh, interesting. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know if that was just because of that particular person or whatnot, but I don't think in general people are necessarily desiring a self-lubricating. I think most people are okay with lubricating their own organs. Yeah, I think a a lot of the patients know that they're going to need some sort of waterly-based jelly and Mm -hmm. and a lot of patients are okay. Mm -hmm. Too much lubrication can lead to smell and odor as well. That's what we see for colonic vaginoplasties mm-hmm. and some patients don't like that. Right. And so speaking of smell and odor, <laughs> STDs and uh, risk of STDs and bacterial vaginosis, do you get a lot of questions about that? And if so, how are you managing that? Sure. You know, it's it's not something that I see uh, frequently, Yeah. Uh, well, to good. be honest with you, uh, which is great for our patients. Yeah. But it's certainly a risk. You can certainly, it's part of skin, it's mucosa mm-hmm. and the urethra so you can certainly get an scd yeah so you need to take the same precautions that you would do mm-hmm. uh if you're having intercourse anywhere else right okay uh, when you have a post-vaginoplasty and when it comes to the bacterial vaginosis and the reason why i asked you this and maybe it's not something that you run into a lot of but for me, it's something that I encounter, of course, being a primary care provider of the gender diverse community. But I've also heard um, from other surgeons in the um, southeast regions 
talk about how the neo-vagina can actually colonize with similar flora. And so the treatment for that, and I've had a lot of patients come in with some sort of fishy odor or like gray discharge, mm-hmm. and I'm treating them with the typical metronidazole gels for five days like I would a cyst vagina. Is that something that you have any information on or different recommendations for, or is that kind of uncharted waters? Yeah, no, I, th- I think we, we, we know uh, exactly how to deal with the problem. I think the one thing I will caution you is to make sure if it's really early, yeah. you know, let's say six months after surgery, yeah. you want to make sure that there's no possibility of any fistula anywhere. Right. So, so you always make culture. Sure, exactly. You want to culture it and make sure there's nothing else going on because you can have, even if it's a, a fistula coming from the bladder, that it may not be necessarily be stool. Right. But it can also create a pseudomonas infection and, and, and it can lead to that green discharge that you're referring to. But, right. You know, I think it's okay to treat it the way you're doing it as long as you have culture information. Okay. Because the, the, the bacterial colonization is so variable. Right. Uh, and it's so independent of each person that I think that we need, I would just get true data of how to treat that infection and not just, you know, think that is a vaginosis and give the metronidazole without knowing exactly. Right. Yeah. I think that's a really important point. I have cultured before and been surprised to find, you know, uh, strep A or, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, colonize there yeah. and have taken care of that. I mean, in that and in that case, too, I, I cultured, I treated and was advised from, you know, somebody else that maybe reculturing wasn't super necessary. But I mean, what are your recommendations in that in that situation? Yeah, I, I agree. I think I, once you obtain one set of cultures, you know what you're dealing with and you have evaluated the canal and you know that it's a pristine canal. There's no other concerns, uh-huh. I think just retreating with the same antibiotic should be okay. I don't think you need to reculture that. Okay. But but at the first evaluation, I would consider culturing it for sure. Okay. And when you say evaluating the area too, do you recommend speculum exams with neovaginas? Yeah. I mean, from my standpoint, I really, I, I as a provider and a surgeon, I need to see how that area is healing. Yeah. But yeah, definitely a clear, gentle Speculum works very well, mm-hmm. and as the patient consents and it's comfortable with that, I don't see a problem with that. It's just really an evaluation of, of a cavity to make sure there's no, no problems. Excellent. Well, that's really informative and super, super helpful, and I'll definitely keep that in mind, you know, especially for the infrequency of the amount of times that I'll experience a neovagina, especially in that early postoperative period. Checking for a fistula seems super obvious, but not something that's always on our uh, radar. So I appreciate that input. Of course. Yeah. And then also when you said checking for a fistula, you know, for people who are listening, that just usually means a tunnel between the tissue to connect two areas. So maybe tunneling between the bladder and the new vagina or tunneling between the colon and the new vagina. And so as providers, we look for that. That also reminds me to ask you about interstitial cystitis. Is that something that you find will complicate vaginoplasty or not really? You know, generally, if the uh, area around, if the cystitis problem has been resolved from an inflammation standpoint, it should mm-hmm. not complicate the procedure itself. However, the patient may have issues with incontinence mm-hmm. uh, right after surgery. So it's something to really be on the watch for mm-hmm. and obviously making sure that the inflammation process mm-hmm. is completely resolved before you start in any type of surgery. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, you know, for, you know, a lot of patients, interstitial cystitis, especially um, in people who are assigned male at birth, it's a chronic thing and it has a lot to do with, like you said, inflammation and muscle tightness. So as long as us providers are sending them to pelvic floor PT and trying to manage that, they should be okay for surgery? Or is that another person that you might encourage to do uh, the vulvoplasty? No, I think if the, I wouldn't just say the patient, if they have cystitis, that they Mm -hmm. should automatically get a vulvoplasty or zero depth. I think that patients are going to go to pelvic therapy before their, or Mm -hmm. they should go to to pelvic therapy before their Mm -hmm. vaginoplasty regardless. And at that point, it can be evaluated to see if the patient is really a candidate for a vaginoplasty uh, and what are the risks for incontinence and other bladder issues, of course. There's other tests that the urologic surgeon can obtain Mm -hmm. to evaluate the degree of, of, Mm -hmm. of potential reflux or incontinence. Uh, and that's something that can be 
discuss in severe cases, of course. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. And I have another question that a patient had emailed in about orgasm post-vaginoplasty. I know we touched on sexual function and whatnot. Their question pertains to, should I expect to ejaculate from my new vagina? Yeah, so technically no, because the you know ejaculatory orgasm that occurred before, it's really not possible right. at this time. So it's, it's a different kind of orgasm. I tell my patients, you really have to sort of explore again you know, boys versus toys again at that point mm-hmm. and kind of get in that and mm-hmm. that sort of exploration mode to see because it is a different kind of orgasm. A lot of patients describe it as being significantly uh, a mental part of the procedure, mm-hmm. very different than the typical ejaculatory orgasm mm-hmm. that the patients may used to have, of course. Okay. So they shouldn't expect any kind of secretory fluid with their orgasms. Correct. Okay. Well, that's good to know. And I also tell my patients too, a lot of that has to do with uh, testosterone levels and the gonads are now removed. And so regardless of how well I'm doing blocking your tea, now you're not making any. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there may not be anything in the seminal vesicles and yes. it may be completely dry based on hormone therapy. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much for all that information. Yeah, of course. So as far as my questions go, I feel like I touched on everything. Did you have anything that you wanted to make sure that listeners were aware of or any frequently asked questions that you get that you would like to address? Yeah, I I just want to just give a general comment about making sure that our patients are really knowledgeable and really research their options before going into a specific procedure. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that a lot of the patient providers, the majority of the providers that are g- doing gender affirming surgery, uh, have been doing it for a long time and have operated in, in a number of patients. But it's mm-hmm. important for patients to, to really do their research, understand the provider. And really, there's nothing wrong in seeing more than one surgeon and sort of get a feel mm-hmm. for that person because the person you decided to go with is the same surgeon that is going to need to be with you by your side for the next, you know, it could be several years of mm-hmm. the process. So you really want to make sure that you, you really connect that person and that person is available for you. Mm-hmm. I think that's amazing remarks. I mean, just from our brief interactions, I can tell that your approach to patients is very different than a lot of people, less transactional and much more focused on developing a relationship. And I think amongst community members, that speaks volumes for a community that's often afraid that they will take the, you know, take a chance, take a lunge on the wrong provider. And they're the ones who are left dealing with the the consequences and the sacrifices of that decision. So to know that they could develop a good relationship with a surgeon who's willing to stand by their side during years of recovery speaks volumes because a lot of other surgeons aren't aren't necessarily developing those relationships. And I think that's so important with these people. Um, that's my approach to care. I tell them all that, you know, um, I don't you know, I, I, I uh, practice very individualized medicine and what looks good for you is going to look good for somebody different. And but the entire way we're going to be customizing and I'll be right here the entire time. And, and a lot of patients take comfort in that. So I appreciate you saying that. Oh, well, thank you very much. I think it's key to make sure, like you said, individualizing care. It's, it's really important for our patients because, you know, it, it's really a diverse world nowadays. And, and mm-hmm. really, we got to make sure that we do our best and, and, and there's going to be, there's so much access to information very mm-hmm. rapidly available. Mm-hmm. Then at the same time, we want to make sure that our patients are getting the care and attention that they need as well. Right. Which, you know, a lot of people do focus on volume and numbers and um, are looking for surgeons who are doing, you know, cranking out cases. But I think there's a lot more to be said about someone who's, who's maintaining a volume at a, at a level that they can manage and make sure that they're post-operative patients are being well taken care of and aren't necessarily advertising on popular social media platforms uh, like TikTok and such. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And, and we're firstly talking about this. I, I, you yeah. know, I think there is, a, there is a, a balance. I think volume, it is important because that is certainly a level of experience yeah. also. Uh, but also there's got to be other uh, parameters as well, such as, you know, the ability to, to research and innovation yeah. and really the, the, the actual, uh, university or academic place or wherever hospital you decided to go to, mm-hmm. it's got to be equipped 
to handle uh, mm-hmm. whatever complications they may develop from that surgery. So that's important as well. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. I have thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you today. And how can our patients and listeners get in touch with you? What's the best way that you want them to reach out to you? I mean, thank you so much for the invitation. It's been really an, an honor. You know, the best way to reach out to us is uh, my website www.drdelcorral.com. You send me a message through there and it goes directly into my email and, and I'll put you in contact with, you know, with, with the right person in my office and we can discuss further. Yeah. And I can attest to that because that's how I first reached out to you and you were really responsive. <laughs> so I love it. Um, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And so we'll also include all that information at the end of our podcast notes. Listeners can expect to be able to reach out and we'll have all kinds of contact information and information about uh, Dr. Del Carell's procedures and also ways to look at pictures of things that he's done, which he does have posted on his website for anybody who is curious and wanting to actually visualize the procedures that he's doing. Yeah, absolutely. Thank thank you so much for the invitation. And I'm so happy that there's people like you uh, really bringing the right information to to patients and really uh, just really unbiased information for patients. And I think that's what we need nowadays in a a world of a lot of uh, media diversity and information. I think it's important the mission that you you have accomplished. So thank you so much for saying that. I mean, I just try, you know, to work with advocates like yourself as well to get the information out there so the people who don't have good access to good care and information can. So I hope that it reaches the people that need to hear it. And I, so I appreciate your our sentiments on that. Remember, everybody, stay fierce and live your truth. <laughs>